I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome, welcome. Uh, What happens here? We do some true crime. Uh, The format of this show, if you're new, is one of my writers, in this case, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Writes me a script. I'm going to read it. We're going to explore it together. And uh, it's going to be a good time. I mean, it's not because this video is about Dennis Rader, BTK. And I'm like, I know what BTK stands for because I'm familiar with Dennis Rader. Not personally. Is he dead? Pretty sure he's dead. Um, but like, I think I made a biographics video about him, which is a YouTube channel that I do. Uh, and I think it stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. So, you know, we're in for a fun one today. Uh, we're not. And normally I like to intersperse these like horrific ones with an occasional heist or something easier. But the last video I recorded last week was uh, about... Um, Oh god, I feel like I've erased it from my mind because it was so horrible. But it was the giant episode. I recorded this like four days ago. What's wrong with me? Ah, it doesn't matter. But it was horrific, horrible case. And that's another one that we've got for you today. Uh, thank you to Jen who edits this uh, podcast. And oh, it's also available on YouTube. Hello, YouTube people. Why not smash that like button? Hit that subscribe. Look at that. I know what I'm doing. Uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, please leave us a review. It would be most welcome. And uh, let's just jump into it, shall we? Wichita is basically an American cliché. Named for a First Nation people who'd come from Oklahoma area and settled in Arkansas to farm and trade, they encountered the Spanish explorer Coronado in about 1541, who, being a Spanish explorer, presumably stole their gold. Yeah, and also everything and maybe killed them, and also gave them horrible diseases, because, uh, colonialism! Oh my god, don't say that. <laughs> I mean, I definitely meant that sarcastically, just to be clear, but I realize a British person saying with joy colonialism is not a good look. Because colonialism was not a good look. Later, they started trading with the French in the late 18th century, resisted invasion in the early 19th, were massacred in events some historians still have the cheek to call the Battle of Wichita. Yeah. Yeah, a battle is not a, a massacre is not a battle, historians. Come on, come on, you could do better. It's 2022. <laughs> After this, they established a treaty with the US, which was repeatedly broken until they were harried into Kansas by the Grey Coats during the Civil War and then shuffled off to a reservation so that European settlers could establish a booming cattle town on their old trading post. Like I said, colonialism, everybody. Of course, naming the city after them made up for all of it, and I'm sure parlor socialists gushing about their unusual architecture and highly interesting circular theory of time is sufficient indication that all's well and we're all friends now. Yeah, sort of like the American military being like, or the American America in general being like, how are we going to uh, make up for all of this colonialism stuff? And, uh, you know, the the horrible crimes committed against the native population. I've got a brilliant idea. Let's name all of our attack helicopters after them. (laughs) What is up with that? Anyway, this cow town was a major part of the Wild West story, with the Pony Express barreling through in characters like the Dalton Gang and Wild Bill Hickok. 
Once the westward expansion was over, Wichita settled down into a quiet, prosperous Midwestern city. A quick scan of their news services shows mostly articles about house prices and drink driving conventions, a sure sign of idyllic prosperity. All I know about Wichita. Are we still talking about Wichita? Yes. Or like the state Wichita is in, Kansas. The only thing I know about Wichita is one of my, uh, one of the YouTube channels that I follow, like one of the ones I, like, I guess I watch the most, Hoovy's Garage. He's a guy who like buys old cars and like drives them around. It's a good time. And he lives in Wichita. That's all I know about it. <laughs> the Chamber of Commerce lists, in, in my mind, uh, Tyler Hoover is the most famous person who lives in Wichita. <laughs> I, I couldn't even point. I couldn't even point to Kansas on a map, to be honest. Well, I know now it's in the Midwest, but it could have been in the South, as far as I know. I know there's. Uh, oh wait, um, I know. Pe- no, wait, they don't. Where Where does Dorothy live? She lived in Kansas, right? We're not in Kansas anymore. Um, so maybe Dorothy is the most famous Kansas per- this I'm sure there's super famous Wichita people. Well, she wasn't necessarily. Simon, what are you talking about? Can't you just get on with a bloody episode? Jesus. It's Monday morning. I've had too much coffee. The Chamber of Commerce lists a Mexican restaurant as one of the 11 wonders of Wichita and one of the top articles which shows up in general search detail search details how the city's general contentment and unremarkable nature causes it to miss out on multiple commercial infrastructure projects so essentially uh they're self-admittedly very a very boring town sure the light aircraft company cessna had its start there really and the name of the city is celebrated in the great american myth but the general sense of wichita is of nothing really happening and in the way the lo- in a way the locals are very happy with that thank you very much which is why the news of a serial killer stalking the suburbs of this quiet kansas town left such a deep scar in its history and its psyche the theory of dangerousness that's a word and a half isn't it dangerousness if you're ever unfortunate enough to mention the series mind under to me you'll fall victim to my regular rant about all the manifold and serious logical and research problems with the theory of dangerousness which the main character douglas created and which blighted not just the study of criminal psychology but popular understandings of violent crime ever since but you're not here to listen to my opinion so let's talk about dennis raider I have to say, like for all of its failings, Mindhunter is extremely enjoyable. I'm thinking correctly that that's the one with that incredible intro sequence where they have that old tape, right, and it plays. That's I don't skip that. It's super long, and I mean nowadays, like intros are really good, but that one is just like I don't skip it. It's so it's like I think the last one that was this good was the introduction to Dexter, that other TV show. Wow, also about serial killers. <laughs> I should I should watch something more cheery. <laughs> It's like, what do you do? Record videos about serial killers at work and then get home? Watch some TV shows about serial killers. Why? And I just started watching another TV show about murder. Uh, It's called Clickbait. And it's with Vincent Chase. And he plays a guy who... Well, I'm not going to give any spoilers. It's not really with Vincent Chase. That's the character he plays in Entourage. But I still see him and I'm like, because he plays an actor in that show. I'm always like, it's Vinny Chase! There's a lot of discussion about Raider not fitting the profile. The first glance is zoosadism. It's a new word to me. I'm going to guess that it's got something to do with torturing animals or killing animals. The torture of animals for sexual gratification. Oh, I didn't know there was that sexual gratification thrown in there as well. That, uh, I mean, torturing animals is bad. And then being like, ah, is like, that's worse. If you're getting off to that, I mean, normally on this show, we're always like, yo, 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 parents, if your kid, if you find your kid, like, killing a cat, torturing a cat, murdering a dog, you know, 
just just doing that take them to uh take them to a psychiatrist be like okay let's let's nip this behavior in the bud if you find oh god that if it, if there's like sexual gratification there as well <laughs> be concerned seems to make him an ideal fit but there's a whole lot of other elements that just don't work the stereotypical profile of a serial killer is a quiet loner who can't maintain relationships or stable employment and has a history of serious childhood abuse or neglect yeah we all know this and i mean the thing is you also i don't know in my mind it's also like yeah serial killers but also like ted bundy they're supposed to be charming you know that you know and in fiction as well they're like you know dexter or um Patrick Bateman, these like famous serial killer characters, but they're not real, obviously. But also Ted Bundy and stuff are. But I think like in the show, mostly it's like yeah, serial killers are a bit weird. They're not all like Ted Bundy charming. They're more like Ed Gein weird. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, is the video I made last week. I was thinking about that all weekends. It's horrible. It's a horrible story. You, I don't know if you've seen it already. If it's gone out, it's an absolute beast of an episode. It was like three and a half hours long and uh it, it is pretty disturbing to be honest and by pretty disturbing i mean it's just straight up disturbing it's about john wayne gacy what did you expect born on march the 9th 1945 radar was the eldest of four sons he had a very normal upbringing his parents were hard-working middle-class folk who according to radar didn't pay him enough attention a frequent eldest child's complaints wait the eldest child gets less attention really i don't know i was the older child and i i don't know maybe my parents were just good um they didn't abuse him and it seems like his childhood was idyllic and free of trauma or violence except of course for the violence that he committed on animals for sexual gratification of course he did <laughs> weirdo it seems that raider's grandparents kept oh my god what are you doing torturing chickens for sexual gratification it's so weird come on and while he was helping to slaughter them, he noticed that he became sexually aroused. This was to start his own sexual awakening, where he would hang cats and dogs for sexual gratification before moving on to stealing underwear and doing the peeping tom while wearing women's clothing. That's what he moved on to? I feel like it should go the other way around. It's like, yeah, he started by torturing animals and getting off on it. And then he started dressing in women's clothing. And peep it being a peeping tom. Like, look. If my kid was dressing in women's clothing and being a peeping tom, I'd be much less concerned than if they were uh, hanging up cats for sexual gratification. That would be, uh, that would be, I feel, a progression. Regression? What's a progression where you move forward but it becomes worse? It's not a regression because that's backwards, but like a negative progression? Negression? Yeah, that works. At some point, he seems to have progressed to autoerotic asphyxiation and would masturbate while wearing bindings on his arms and legs. It seems that for no apparent reason, Drader developed a sadistic asphyxiation and bondage kink. Watching his confessions and reading the summaries of evidence, another pillar of the serial killer stereotype falls over as well. At that of above-average intelligence, Raider's speech and grammar are halting, functional at best and incomprehensible at worst. He loves to talk. Once police got him going, he went for 30 hours. But it's definitely a love of the sound of his own voice, rather than any gifts he has a con as a conversationalist or raconteur. Basically, it's clear from listening to him speak and reading his materials that he's a bit of an idiot. <laughs> Raider left high school in 1964 and attended Kaz Kansas Wesleyan Wesley Wesley University for a year. Being a poor student, he dropped out and joined the U.S. Air Force, serving as a technician in Japan and other places that weren't Vietnam from 1966 to 1970. Why he was smart enough to avoid Vietnam? I mean, geez. <laughs> 
He appears to have volunteered for the Air Force to avoid combat in Vietnam, a common practice at the time. Rader was honorably discharged and married Paula Dietz in 1971. He worked for a time at Leaker's IGA, a supermarket where his mother was a bookkeeper, then did some odd jobs here and there, assembling outdoor equipment for a sort of marquee company, and enrolling to study at Butler Community College, where he got an associate's degree in electronics, which he used to get better jobs, including a stint with Cessna. So in all, all in all, it just seems like he's an incredibly average person leading an average life up until this point. I mean, other than the like weird going. I mean, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, he's been torturing animals for sexual gratification, so he's not quite right. Um, and look, I know I, I, I don't feel like I have to bring this up in this case, but I'm not kink shaming. But because you know, like, even though I said like, okay, being a peeping tom's a bit weird. You probably shouldn't do that. But like dressing up in women's clothes. That's fine. Peeping Tom, yeah, you know, you're kind of invading people's privacy and being a bit weird. But torturing animals? No. No. That's not a kink that's okay. It's not okay. Society has decided. And I don't think we'll be changing our minds on that one. It's not like, oh, Simon, this isn't going to age well. It's 2040 and people are torturing. It's completely acceptable. That's just like another kink. Animal torture. That's not happening, so I don't think I need to worry. And we really didn't need to go down this whole rabbit hole. By 1979, he'd received a Bachelor of Science majoring in Administration of Justice. From 1974 to 19... Really? Administration of Justice? That's... Wow. From 1974 to 1988, Rader was an installer for ADT Security Systems. More on that later. And after he became a Census Officer and then a Compliance Officer in Park City, the suburb of Wichita in which he was raised. I feel like this would be a normal story today because people switch jobs all the time but i feel like people switch jobs less in the past right and this guy seems to have literally done everything he's like an aircraft mechanic and then he's a census officer and then he's a whole bunch of other stuff. Rader was an active member of the Christ Lutheran Church, a scout leader, and a government official. He and Paula raised two children, Kerry and Brian, and right up until the time of his capture, Kerry described their lives as the American dream. By all measures, Dennis Rader was a very average man living an average life, a life which the theory of dangerousness developed by Douglas said he shouldn't have been able to maintain. Yeah, but there are always exceptions. I mean, if you create a rule that applies to like 90% of serial killers, or even like 70-80%, that's a lot better than not creating a rule at all. And of course there's going to be exceptions to every rule. I don't know what the stats are on that theory of dangerousness. Oh my god, that word. It's almost as difficult as the word effortless. God damn it. Like, why do you even try? The Early Murders Watching Raiders' police interviews and court testimony is a strange experience, mostly because he's a very boring speaker. And then there's the issue of stupidity. His grammar is halting, torturous, and often unclear. He painstakingly details his own nomenclature, projects, and potential victims. Trolling is what he calls the victim selection phase. Stalking, the reconnaissance and surveillance phase. And hits are what he calls kills. He describes a changing MO, starting hesitantly with the Otero family, then using ruses for his next few victims, before simply opening, openly stating his intent, minus the killing, for his final crimes. He talks about pre-packed bondage kits, bemoans their lack when he's failed to bring them along, and describes in detail how he attempted to deal with irritants like children and dogs. Raider's a classic power and control killer, and it's interesting to see the matter-of-fact way he describes his reactions to losing control of victims 
and situations. Criminal psychologists point to his methods and nomenclature as evidence of deliberate compartmentalization, an effort to maintain the war between his murderous self and the ordinary family man that he was most of the time. I mean, and just reading it so far, it seems like he did that really well for apparently someone who's not so bright. Raider himself describes his personality as the cube, each side different but related and easy to rapidly switch between. It's worth pointing out, though, that this creation of euphemistic terms and the self-aware division of the homicidal op- of his homicidal operations into phases is very military and possibly evidence of the formative effect of his years in the Air Force. It's also evident of his being a bit of a psycho, because he's like, yeah, no, I can just shut that off. It's like, what are you doing today, Dennis? Being a wonderful family man. And then he just flips the side to another cube and he's like, what are you doing? I'm going to cut people up. Or not cut people up. That's not him. He binds people. Binds people up. Dude, it's so intense. I feel like anyone who like can switch too easily between two different modes. Like for me, obviously, like when I'm doing a show and stuff, I mean, it is me. No, it is me. That's the thing. I, you know, it's a little bit played up because I'm presenting stuff and you got to make it entertaining. It's not like if I, it's not, well, obviously I don't sit down and read a script when I'm having a conversation, but you know, it's me still. I find anyone who can just like flip too quickly and when you see it and they're like different people at different times is, I don't know, it's a bit psycho, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit like, ah, that's kind of scary. His first murders on the 15th of January 1974 were perpetrated against the Otero family. The Oteros were from Puerto Rico and met in Harlem, New York. They'd recently moved into the Sedgwick County area of Wichita, an optimistic neighborhood working its way into the general prosperity of the city. I've never heard a uh, neighborhood described as optimistic. We call it like gentrifying, um, improving, (laughs) upwardly mobile. Joseph was an Air Force veteran, champion boxer, gourmet cook, and father of five children. Someone's been busy. I mean, not just with the kids. I mean, he's been busy there as well. But like gourmet cook, championship boxer, veteran. Wow. Charlie, Danny, Carmen, Joseph II, and Josephine. Really liked his own name, didn't he? He had retired from the Air Force as a Master Sergeant and has gone on to obtain a commercial pilot's license, settling in Wichita for its vibrant aviation industry and working as a pilot instructor and a mechanic. He was a highly popular member of the community. Julie had come to the U.S. on a banana boat where she'd met Joseph and married him after two years of dating. She was a judo enthusiast, having taken it up on military bases, who encouraged her children to participate and was universally described as vivacious, popular and active in the community. Joseph was known to be a loving but strict father, emphasizing the importance of doing well at school. At the time, all the children were popular and high-performing, with 11-year-old Josephine showing the greatest academic promise. So this is actually a family living that American dream. I mean, like, we talked about Raider's family, and he's basically, you know, everything's great, look at my beautiful American dream. But then his mask falls off, and it's like, oh god, (laughs) he's a monster. But these guys are getting on with it, it's nice. I mean... I guess that's exactly what Chris is setting us up for. I'm like, oh, this is so nice. And I'm like, oh, wait, they're the victims, aren't they? They're going to get murdered. Uh... Under questioning, Raider admitted to selecting the Oteros basically at random, having spotted Julie and her daughter Josephine in the street while he was driving his wife to work. He prepared what he called a hit kit, consisting of weapons and bindings, and intending to do things to Mrs. Otero and or Josephine, he went to the family house between 7 and 7.30 in the morning. He cut the phone lines, crept around to the back door, and hesitated. I had reservations about even going, or just walking away, Raider said during his plea testimony. Tragically, nine-year-old Joseph came out the back door at this very moment. Raider pulled a pistol and forced him back inside. 
He'd been expecting only Julie and Josephine to be at home, so he was surprised to find Joseph Sr. in the kitchen with his wife and daughter. Raider told them that he was wanted in California and that he needed food, money, and a car to get away. This was a ruse to keep the family compliant and one he'd use again for future victims. The family consented to being tied up, so he took all four of them to a bedroom. At some point, Raider had a problem with the dog, so he ordered them to put it outside. He bound Mrs. Otero on the bed the others on the floor. He found a pillow for Joseph Jr.'s head. As he learned, he had a cracked rib from a car accident. This kind of care and attention is typical of power control killers and is used to keep the victims compliant. According to Raider, the family offered him the car, what little cash they had, and complained about the tightness of their bindings, which he loosened for them. Yeah, at this point, you can see, I mean, you don't know you have to fight back because you're like, yeah, he's just robbing us. It's like the 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 nine eleven attacks. It's like no no no, we're just hijacking this plane, and it's like oh my god, now it's different because you're like no you're not, <laughs> fight back. Raider didn't really have as much control over the situation as he'd have liked. He recalls fretting over the fact that having all four of them in the same room wasn't ideal, and he mentions the dog several times. He talks about losing control repeatedly with an irritated expression on his face as if recalling the irritation that he felt at the time. In any event, he decided to kill Joseph Sr. by placing a bag over his head. He then moved over to Julie and strangled her unconscious, thinking he'd killed her. In his own words, I never strangled anyone before, so I really didn't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. By now, he'd also put a bag over the head. Uh, then he put a bag over the head of Joseph Jr., and as Joseph Sr. had managed to rip a hole in the bag over his head, he placed a t-shirt and another bag over it and tied it off with a cord. Ligature strangulation would later become his preferred method. At this point, Julie regained consciousness and begged him to spare her son. He agreed, took young Joseph off to another room, and killed him. Jesus Christ. And then came back and finished strangling Mrs. Otero, this time fatally. Finally, he took young Josephine down to the basement where he partially stripped her, tied her to a PVC pipe, and hanged her. He masturbated either while she asphyxiated, leaving semen at the scene, as he did at other crime scenes. Quote, What's that word when an adults attracted kids? He asked the police. They told him, pedophile. To which he responded, Yeah. I think I've got a bit of that in me. Jesus Christ, dude. What the f***? When all was done, he collected some souvenirs, watching a radio, and cleaned up the house. The bodies were discovered later that day by the three older children. Of course they were. Good God. That's years of therapy. Charlie, Danny, and Carmen. Charlie describes finding his parents' bodies. It was just like as if he had ripped my chest open and tore my heart out. Mercifully, the bodies of the two younger children were found by first responders rather than the 14-year-old Charlie. The murders absolutely stunned the quiet city of Wichita. Detective Gary Caldwell, who found young Josephine in the basement, described the scene as the most bizarre he'd ever encountered. A task force of 74 officers was assigned to the case amid a media frenzy, strong political pressure to get a quick result, and an intense public outcry and scrutiny. A few months later, in April, Raider moved on to his next victim. This was a 21-year-old student named Catherine Knight. Raider had trolled and stalked Catherine for some time, along with several others. During his confession, Raider referred to Catherine as a sweet kid and his plan to kill her as Project Lights Out. On the 4th of April, Raider stuck, struck again. He once again cut the phone line, broke into Catherine's house via a back door, and waited for her to come home. Once again, he was surprised by unexpected people in the house as Catherine had returned with her 19-year-old brother Kevin. Raider was carrying two pistols, a 22 caliber which he used to hold them at gunpoint, and a 357 Magnum which he carried in a shoulder holster. He gave them the same story about being wanted in California, had Kevin tie Catherine up, and then took him to a separate room, applying a lesson learned from his previous murders. 
When he returned to Kevin, after torturing his sister for a bit, Kevin fought back. Raider says Kevin broke his bond, saying in court, If I had brought my stuff, Kevin would be dead today. That's not a brag. That's just a statement of fact. Kevin and Raider struggled for a while before Raider shot him in the face. Thinking he was dead, he then returned to Catherine, but he found more than he'd bargained for there as well. Catherine fought, in his words, like a hellcat. He got to the point where he thought that Catherine had been subdued when he heard movement in the other room. Going back to Kevin, he found he wasn't dead, and what's more, he still had a bunch of fight left in him. After shooting him in the face, holy sh**. They struggled again, and this time Kevin even managed to get the magnum in his shoulder holster. And there was a tense moment when Kevin and Raider both struggling for the pistol before Raider shot Kevin in the head with the 22 again. Sure of the kill this time, he returned to Catherine's room and tried to strangle her again, but she fought back. Raider gave up and stabbed her 11 times in the abdomen lower back. He heard Kevin, incredibly still alive, escape the house. Raider cleaned up and left without gathering any souvenirs. Kevin, who went on to be the only survivor of a BTK attack, ran for the police. Catherine, also still alive, called an ambulance. Raider wasn't as good at cutting phone lines as he thought before she died tragically hours later in surgery. Ugh. Wow. This got so... In- I mean, this was... This is... Oof. I've written a few of these now, and while I diligently read all the eye-searing, mind-polluting details available, I don't usually inflict it on viewers. As Simon said in a previous video, this channel should be more CSI than Saw. In this, in the case of the first five murders, however, the detail is revealing. According to, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is about as far as I can do. Like, I don't want any more details than that. I don't want a, this show to be any more details than that. I want the details as they are necessary to advance the case i don't need any more than that and i think we walked the line fine there obviously it's still incredibly disturbing but um yeah i imagine all this stuff will be relevant according to raider's confession the otero slayings had a very long gestation period he started with pure fantasies altering magazine adverts to make them into bondage scenes drawing pictures and writing long text accounts he'd formulated earlier plans of snatching a woman from a convenience store and had gone as far as surveillance and reconnaissance for the attack before abandoning it in favor of the oteros and even in his assault on the otero home there really isn't much of in the way of a solid operational planning the fussy hit kit the weapons and gear he had prepared and other elements might mislead a casual observer into thinking of him some sort of secret level agent level infiltrator but that reality only existed in his own confused mind closer examination shows that what he came packed for was a fantasy he had no real plan beyond gaining access his efforts to control the family were shambolic succeeding only through surprise and firepower and from his own accounts it only occurred to him quite late in the attack that it'd have to kill them all a similar lack of preparedness is evident in the night attack where it seems he assumed she would cooperatively play the victim it's this dichotomy between the careful cautious stalker and the childish bumbler which is so frustrating as it's clear raider was only just barely organized enough to evade detection for so long just the slightest turn of fortune against him could so easily have ended his run of murders much earlier yeah i can't i don't know how many people raider ends up killing but he doesn't seem like a very bright man and it's kind of always like oh the police are probably bright than you but they still can't get you it's kind of like, come on come on come on please a long clean run raider continued committing murders between 1974 and 1991 an unusually long clean run just a minute ago and it's like how has he managed to get away with it so long while being not so bright that is an insane 
period of time. Over much of this time, the citizens of Wichita were unaware that they had a serial killer in their midst. Raider sent multiple communications to the police, the first being in 1974. A troubled youth for some reason had confessed to the crime and implicated two of his friends. Troubled youth isn't very informative and doesn't really give us any clues as to what this lad was thinking or why he might have confessed, and various ethical considerations mean that we're probably not going to figure it out in our lifetimes. Uh often i don't know we've come across people who falsely confessed to crimes before on casual criminalist even terrible crimes like this and usually they're mentally unwell um or manipulated by the police into giving enough confession so arrested um you're not very bright and aggressive police interrogation um forcing sort of a not a forced confession but like a you better confess to these crimes boy or it's gonna get bad for you and uh, then you know that's what happens it's not good regardless of this however suffice it is to say that false confessions happen quite frequently and for a variety of reasons ranging from homelessness through to payment in the case of organized crime right through to serious mental incapacity yeah i think okay homelessness i mean it's always kind of like isn't it you know joked that oh you know you're homeless you could do commit crime and go to prison i mean joked uh, that's not the right word to use but like it's a thought that i don't know who has this it's just a stupid thing isn't it obviously um people don't want to go to prison um so i don't think that's particularly realistic but also the uh, payment for organized crime definite rarity there that's not the usual one i gotta say it's just like over uh, police being too aggressive and mental incapacity of some type we can feel sympathy i think for people whose lives are so crap that a bit of fame or money or an end of life sentence sounds like an upgrade i don't I really don't think that's the majority of cases, Chris. I think it's often just mental incapacity. I could be wrong. But Raider had no such compassion. He was simply annoyed that somebody else was going to get the credit for his work. So he called up a local TV station and directed them to a mechanical engineering book in the local library, in which they found a letter detailing elements of the Otero crime which hadn't been made public. This letter was the subject of intensive scrutiny. It was typed appallingly and with handwritten corrections, and it contained some ramblings and an itemized list of each of the victims, their cause of death, and their positions in the crime scene. I have a sample here with the handwritten corrections in bold. This is going to be very difficult to read. Those three, uh, bold correction, dude you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it myself with no one's help. There's a correction on ones. There has been no talk either. Let's put it straight. Dude, this is it's not well written. It's hard to read. After this, the list of victims begins. The unique errors in this letter were theorized in an attempt to disguise literacy levels and education, and to and a somewhat dim-witted attempt at that. As it turns out, it was simply dim-witted. This was Raider's real level of literacy and the way he generally wrote and spelled. Reading through his private writings, his fantasy descriptions, and attempts at an autobiographical novel. One gets the impression of a man who's thinking through treacle. He has real trouble expressing himself. Treacle, by the way, American friends, is uh, is molasses, right? Treacle is molasses. Because I, I don't know, I've made videos before, and people, we always talk about like molasses. And I'm like, oh my God, what is molasses? So I finally looked it up. Turns out it's treacle. Um, there you go. He has real trouble expressing himself clearly. No understanding of narrativization big words <laughs> it's like my level of literacy some lies somewhere between dennis raiders and chris's 
and a limited understanding of the meanings of basic words. A lot of people have only watched his guilty plea, which was televised because America, but this was clearly a coached performance. During his confessions, he frequently stumbled, used the wrong words, stalked for stalked or assimilate, assimilated for simulated, and outlined thought processes which frequently indicated that what the police were dealing with here wasn't an evil genius but rather a fussy moron. This might seem to be at odds with the way BTK is usually portrayed. Almost every story or video, ta- video go- about him goes on about his fiendish intelligence and waxes lyrical on his meticulous MO, but this isn't a true picture of the man. Oh boy, this happens all the time in true crime stuff. It's like the genius. The worst one we've ever done was a video, not we've ever done, the worst, the worst example of uh, people assuming that a killer is genius was the Leopold and Loeb murders. And all over the internet, you'll see like Leopold and Loeb, the genius killers. And it's like, no, they weren't genius. They were really dumb. I, I wasn't really sure where the genius angle came from other than the fact that they both thought they were geniuses. They both thought they were so smart, but they weren't at all. They were just, they, and they got caught so quickly <laughs> and they, they just left evidence everywhere. There's so much of this, like, uh, there's so much of this, this guy's a genius. And it's like, no, he's not. It's really rare. Um, I, we haven't covered the Unabomber, have we? Ted Kaczynski, he's proper smart. Like, he killed people, many, you know, a bunch of people, and injured a bunch of people more. And it's like, no, he was a genius. He's he's incredibly smart. Um, but most of the time, no. Ted Kaczynski, is he true crime enough? I mean, he's more like a bomber. But it's such an interesting story. I understand that in order to comprehend this kind of evil, we have a sort of psychological need to mythologize it, to believe that exceptional evil requires exceptional humans to commit it. Yeah, exceptionally evil humans. Why can't we just be okay with the fact that that he's got something wrong? We don't need to be like, oh, he's got to be exceptional, he's got to be a genius. No, he's just exceptionally devoid of emotions. But the disturbing truth is that it doesn't. Simply being a lone, organized offender with moderate operational discipline and information security is generally enough when combined with a bit of luck. Of course, this is a bit of an itchy thought as it highlights the vulnerability of people in peaceful, open societies. But there it is. No evil genius is so hard of thinking he can't write or even talk coherently, and there's nothing meticulous about leaving semen at most scenes or keeping souvenirs in your own closet or compulsively and voluminously writing down your crimes. One of the major factors in Raider's long, clean run seems to have been his caution. He was extremely risk-averse. The AG describes it as cowardly, and when he couldn't see a way ahead, it'd just simply go home. After the Otero and Bright were at murders, Raider went silent for a few years. From his own accounts, he was still actively trolling, stalking, and fantasizing. He talks about having done rehearsals, breaking into homes in order to see if he could, and to steal intimate garments. He mentions a few failed attempts where women had resisted him or simply not come home in time, and he complains bitterly about the constraints of married life. I had commitments, he bleated in police interviews, indicating he could have got a lot more done if he'd been a lone wolf. Then in 1977, he murdered Shirley Vaughan and Nancy Fox. Shirley Vaughan was a single mother with three small children, whom Raider kept locked in a bathroom while he murdered their mother. Raider had initially attempted to break into another house, but having failed to do so, decided to pretend to be a private detective and showed a photo of his own wife and son to the child that he met to a child that he met in the street, pretending to be looking for them. He then followed the child to the Vaughan household, congratulating himself 
all the while dressing and operating like James Bond, a frequent fantasy of his, before tying the young woman up and strangling her with a belt. Later that year, he murdered Catherine Fox, a murder he considered to be the most perfect of his projects. I'll spare you the details, but this was the one where he finally managed to break into the house, find his victim alone, and enforce compliance. His own writings and drawings related to the Fox murder are particularly grim, and it's clear Raider has a special place in his memory for the recollections of that killing. Afterwards, he called police and claimed the Fox and Vion murders, as well as one other. Another fellow, another fallow period was to follow, this time lasting eight years. By Raider's own account, he simply got busy with work and family life. By now, Wichita residents had been reluctantly informed they had a serial killer in their midst, reluctantly, because police correctly surmised BTK was simply after attention and initially calculated, somewhat naively, that depriving him of it might, be, might remove some of the motivation to murder again. This news had caused many in Wichita and elsewhere to install home security systems, and one of the biggest providers of these was ADT. Wait, didn't he work for ADT? A company which still operates on a massive scale today. I myself have lived in several homes with ADT alarms and patrols. Of course, ADT was the company Radar worked for as an installer, and he used this relative freedom of movement to scout for victims, as well as using his access to private homes to facilitate the stealing of masturbation aids such as nightgowns and socks lovely yeah i feel like raid is one of these unusual criminals who up until this point he doesn't have any smaller crimes that would prevent him getting a job at a security company like normally i feel when we talk about serial killers and stuff there's some backgrounds they've had an arrest at some point they've done some minor crime they've had they've i feel like most of the time they've had a brush with the law the sort of thing that would you know make adt be doing i'm sorry mate but we can't employ you because you were in prison and we're a security company um yeah so he's kind of got this clean record which allows him to get this job and then obviously he's gonna use it to do crimes great in 1985, Raider killed a near neighbor, Marine Hedge, whom he slightly knew. He actually left a Cub Scout camp. Raider had become a scout leader when his son joined in order to do this. He spent quite a bit of time setting up an alibi through which he calls my most complicated hit, but which to an outside observer is just random silliness. Raider took taxis and did multiple vehicle swaps, spent time in a bowling alley to establish an alibi, and generally tooled around like a man who'd completely forgotten what he'd told the other scouting staff, or that he could have just not told anyone he was leaving the campsite. Yeah, if you're at some campsite, just once everyone's gone to bed, go out, commit your crimes, and then come back, and everyone will be like, no, he's at the campsite the whole night even though you sneaked away to do some murder and like if you're going to do if you're if you're somewhere committing a crime unless you're unless someone's lying about it for you or you're doing some like real trickery there's no way to set up an alibi because the police will come and they'll ask the bowling alley was he here at 3am no 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 he left by two what are you up to dennis in any event, he killed Marine Hedge in a home, and after a quick moment to regain what he idiotic idiotically terms my reposure, he took her body to his own church, where he posed it for bondage Polaroids before dumping it in scrublands. By now, Rado was performing hand exercises to improve his strangling. Jesus. A few months later, in 1986, Rado killed Vicky Wigal, women had spotted while working for ADT. Given the presence of barking dogs, his victim's resistance, and a claim that her husband would soon arrive, Rado hastily strangled her and took some quick Polaroids for Sparky big time before leaving. Sparky was his name for his penis. 
So Sparky Big Time, well, we'll just leave you to figure out what that means. Raider's last known murder was of a woman called Dolores Davis in 1991, the same year he quit his job at ADT and became a compliance officer for the Park City Council. It seems Raider was targeting her young daughter, but was hoping to perhaps get them both. After spending a great deal of time trying to figure out a way into the house, he eventually chose the night of the annual Trapper Scout dead of winter outing and simply threw a cinder block through her back window late at night. After subduing and killing her, Raider took her body to the Kansas Department of Transport Lake and dumped her there. The Kansas City, the Kansas Department of Transport has a lake? Weird. The hurried killing and dumping occurred because Dolores had told him that she was expecting an unspecified visitor. This was after 11 p.m., and Raider somehow believed her. Despite this, he returned to the house to clean up the scene before leaving for the scout camp because, in his words, he had time constraints. He returned the next night to take bondage Polaroids, which she recalls being unsatisfied with, as you can see where animals had attacked her. Oh my god. Dude, no. Don't need to know. The World's Most Satisfying Own Goal After 1991, Raider simply drops off the map. There were no more killings. The decades-long investigation became a cold case, and Raider became an animal control officer who, according to some accounts, was overzealous and a bully, but was generally considered a nice guy and a pillar of the community by others. Somewhere in this time, he had been elected president of the congregation of his church, Christ Lutheran, which is not a position unpopular people tend to attain, so this does open to question whether the people seeing clues to his murderous career in his conduct were perhaps projecting later knowledge onto their memories. Yeah, almost certainly, in my opinion. It's like that, that ability to adjust what you remember based on new information is crazy. And if you're like more aware of your ability to do this, just 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 keep that in mind. And it's insane the 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 stuff that you like. It's just crazy how unreliable our memories are, and how we do exactly this. We learn something. Am I making sense? Where you learn something in the present, and you're like, oh yeah, I always thought that. It's like, no, you didn't, though, did you? You didn't. You didn't. Basically, BTK's memory was fading, and it was an article published on the 30th anniversary of the Otero murders, which seems to have made the mo- uh, which seems to have made this sting for Raider. The article claimed that Kansas students no longer feared the specter of BTK. It also speculated that BTK was dead, imprisoned for some other offense, or had simply got too old to be a threat. Raider, offended by this, began leaving dead drops containing word puzzles, false clues, crime souvenirs, in one case a bound Barbie doll posed to look like Josephine Otero, complete with crudely fashioned pubic hair stuck on the crutch. He also seeded false information into these packages, including the highly sophisticated and fiendishly clever step of obscuring his date of birth. Genius. Some fragments of a novel and short stories were released, presumably to show the profound genius at work behind his killings, and consistent with this goal, I've included a sample. Quote, the natural sex appeal of girl and fantasies of them, bounds and torture, or mainly just being helpless, grew each day inside his body. Soon, just the thought of a girl being bound was enough. He could play with himself and think and immediately have an ejection. Eventually, the long years of fantasy, the thinking and desire boil over and in one night he began to stake his prey this is I, it doesn't i mean it does come across how bad it is when i read it aloud but it is worse it's it there's no the, the punctuation's horrible obviously there's the use of incorrect words it's just not well written it's not clever it's not good it's just bad 
Anyway, after a few months of Raider trying to terrorize the Wichita community with his Barbie dolls and literary masterworks, dead drop instructions were sent to Cake TV indicating a package at Home Depot. Why are you doing this? Raider, you're a serial killer. If you want to terrify people, kill people. Why are you like leaving Barbie dolls around being like, I'm still around? What's the reason for not killing? I mean, I don't want to. <laughs> sounds like I'm encouraging it. I'm obviously not. I'm just wondering why it's this instead of the other option. Interestingly, the package was nearly lost forever as the employee who found it threw it out thinking it was a joke. Patient detective work, i.e. leaving a notice in Home Depot and then actually manning the phones, led to the box's recovery. Several items were in it. A souvenir, some of the usual muddle-headed documents, one describing a fantasy of setting up a Holmstar murder hotel, as well as a document entitled Comication, which said, Can I communicate with Floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. So, this is the part of the story that I absolutely remember, and it is fantastic. If you don't know it, brace yourselves, because this is uh, chef's kiss stuff here. The police were instructed to take out a classified ad saying, Rex, it will be okay, should this be the case. Rex, by the way, was short for Rex for Sex, one of the many names Raider wanted to be known by. Like a horribly twisted child, unable to decide whether he wants to be Max Power Thrust or Ramjet Ultima or Lucian Darkminds. Oh my god, they're like cringe handles of children. And <laughs> we've all done it. We all had our cringe handles. <laughs> Max power thrust. Anyway, lead detective Ken Landwehr, who'd actually been an investigator on one of the earlier task forces, duly placed the ad and continued his actually quite stellar police work, consulting with interagency experts and patiently and thoroughly going over all of the available evidence. And so it was that on the 16th of February 2005, a local TV station received a padded, padded package with excessive postage affixed, containing a floppy disk with a single document, test A. RTF. Landveer's team right-clicked on the document, looked at properties, and uncovered the fact that someone called Dennis, Dennis from Christ Lutheran Church, had made it. I don't understand. It's so stupid. So this genius guy, essentially, is like, hey, police, if I send you a floppy disk, can you trace it back to me? And the police are like, no, mate, definitely not. We can never do that. We definitely, it's definitely not just something you right-click on and click properties, and then it says author. Definitely not something that is a thing don't you know you'll be fine just send us the disc <laughs> and he's like okay holy sh it's 2005 you could have googled it mate come on some elementary googling later and they had grounds to seek a warrant to dna test daughter kerry raider's medical samples which matched the semen they had from multiple scenes from there the capture of dennis raider himself was conducted flawlessly once raider had the dna results explained to him he simply confessed he was shocked that detective landver had lied to him <laughs> Dude, what did you expect? We're both law enforcement, he said, referring to his time as a local dog catcher. Raider didn't speak at his arraignment, so a plea of not guilty was entered on his behalf. But by the time he came to trial, it changed his plea to guilty and delivered testimony, admitting to all ten of the murders that he was charged with. Raider was sentenced to ten consecutive life sentences as he was arraigned some four years before Kansas had re-established its death penalty. And so ended the career of a man who should go down in history as a shining example of the crushing banality of evil, rather than as a criminal genius, as he so frequently and falsely represented as. Yeah, if we do one good thing with this show, I do feel it's like we point out that these criminals are, you know, it's like, they're unbelievably good plotters. They're like the Napoleon of murder. And it's like, no, it's just he's a bit dim, isn't he? He's the guy that people describe as smart. 
and he literally sent a floppy disk to the police after asking them whether it was okay with his name attached to it come on <laughs> dismembered appendices Somewhat unsurprisingly, Raider became a dog catcher and a lawn measurer after it had been rejected by the county, county police. I mean, no disrespect to the local police forces in the US when I say that pretty well any able-bodied, functionally literate human can get some kind of police job, even if it's not as an officer, and it's revealing that Raider couldn't. 2. Dennis Raider's daughter, Carrie, had been, has been reconciled to her father and is now a high-profile motivational speaker and published author who is dedicated her life to helping people deal with sudden trauma, which she undoubtedly experienced when the FBI went to her house and blurted out her father's true identity while interviewing her on the day of his arrest. Well, good for you, Kerry. Because there's another way that could have gone, where it's like your trauma super affected your life and all in like a negative way, rather than in what seems to be a really positive way. Good for you. Number three, it's strongly believed by some investigators that Raider has more murders under his belt, but that he's claimed, but he, but that he's clammed up since Kansas reintroduced the death penalty. So he's still alive. Is he still alive? If that's true, this would explain the long periods of silence as Raider's MO has been sufficiently typical and varied that it might be difficult to connect crimes in different areas or cities. As now, I know he's in prison forever, <laughs> but it'd be interesting. Like someone gets on this case and it's like, let's find just a couple more murders. That we think he did. Let's tie them to him and have them tried now and, you know, try to get him killed. Yeah? I mean, yeah. That could be a good project for someone. Number four, Raider was planning. <laughs> Simon, since you started this thing, I was like, nah, I don't really believe in the death penalty. And I've just been completely jaded by this. I'm like, yo, when you're killing nine year old children with their parents there, or killing parents with their children next door, I'm like, F you. <laughs> F you. Number four, Raider was planning a new murder when he was arrested and is now in solitary confinement and reportedly eager to speak to any journalist, investigator, or complete random about his crimes or any other aspect of his life. Given this, I'd strongly suggest nobody make contact with him ever again. All his thoughts are in the 18th District Cedric County Court Documents, case number 05CR498. Anyway, so case number 05CR498. Anyway, so why help him get off? on the memories of old crimes. Yeah, fuck that guy. Let's just let him rot in prison. Um, and when making a video about him, I have no interest. Uh, like, I don't have any interest in having like information from this guy. He's a fucking horrible criminal. And uh, yeah, I'd r much rather do a hit piece like this on this piece rather than uh, be like, yeah, let's talk to him and let him expound on his like stupid ideas about how, he's smart, how smart he thinks he is when actually he's just a stupid douchebag. Anyway. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist, the casual hit job on Dennis Raider. Uh, thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed the show, please do. If you're watching on YouTube, there's a like, there's a subscribe. Feel free to utilize them. If you're listening as a podcast, hi, please do leave a review. It helps get this show in front of more people, and I really do appreciate it. I go through, I read all the reviews, even the bad ones. Even the bad, there aren't that many bad ones. They're like a 4.9 average. Mwah. Love it. Um, thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.